0: Let's be turning together, if you don't mind, to Colossians 3. We will focus our attention today on the end of verse 15. You'll notice if you were here last week or able to listen to our podcast that Pastor Rick did not cover the last phrase in verse 15. You are also probably pretty aware that in the original autographs, this one by Paul, that there were not chapter and verse divisions, so we will cover the last phrase in verse 15 and go down through verse 17. By way of a little bit of foreshadowing, we will begin next week talking about the Christian family and the responsibilities that we have as those being made new in Christ to live together in beautiful marriages and beautiful relationships between parents and children So we look forward to those times together. But today, we will focus our attention, as I said, on the end of verse 15 down through the end of verse 17. Let me ask you a simple question. Maybe this will help orient us a little bit today. How do you come today? How do you feel? What's on your mind? Now, I'm not the uh, worst preacher in the world. I have a little bit of skill. But I know that I am not the most compelling guy out there. I suspect and I hope that maybe a few of you really looked forward to coming and hearing the Bible preached today. But for most of us, we come together today and we've got all kinds of things on our minds. Surgeries, layoffs, COVID-19, losing an hour of sleep last night, kids' practices as soon as you finish today, and hopefully this decent preacher will finish on time. There's lots of things on our minds. Most of us are, are pretty adept pretty instinctive at noticing the difficult stuff of life. Most of us, in one way or another, are a little bit jaded a good bit of the time, relatively naturally cynical, and if we have had enough hard things happen in life, and it doesn't take long to live here in this broken world, to become pretty aware that lots of things go wrong here. And if we are not careful, we can get to the point that we expect the bad. In fact, we we sort of sanctify it by calling ourselves discerning. And we brace ourselves, we, we guard ourselves against being hurt, against being disappointed. And if we're not careful, if this goes too far, then we end up walking through this broken but yet very beautiful world, numb and scared and cynical much of the time. Do you ever find yourself there? A lot of us are there this morning. But under inspiration of the Spirit, the Apostle Paul has left for us profoundly important instruction. Instruction which should help form the very fabric, the very culture of our church, of our family here. So, this is a profoundly important check on who we are, what we dwell upon, what we treasure and who we will be both for one another and for a community that has very little ability to check their natural cynicism. And so today we are going to talk about from Colossians 3:15 through 17 how to nurture a thankful and I would say because we are going to nurture a thankful we can therefore turn into a compelling community. For in an age of jadedness and cynicism, there is something disarming and compelling about a community of people that live with deliberate thankfulness. Why here in our verses three times does Paul call the church, us today, to thanksgiving? Well, in Colossae, as we have discussed at length, there was some kind of heretical influence that had infiltrated the city. Not completely unfamiliar to other cities around the region. A heresy that probably, for the most part, was marked by a move towards self-righteousness. A desire to contribute something to our own justification. The same heresy shows up throughout the New Testament. In fact, it is ubiquitous, widespread throughout all of human history up to this day. The simple and pernicious, very evil, desire to somehow self-justify. The heresy in Colossae fundamentally disregarded the Lord Jesus and His free gift of grace, which is alone sufficient to redeem us and restore us to God. But what happens whenever we trend over toward a posture of self-righteousness, where we believe that we must contribute something to our justification well, first, such a posture inevitably leads to unhealthy self dependence. We are constantly, unhealthfully introspective, seeking whether or not we are measuring up. And because we never will, the next domino falls, and that is that such a posture also inevitably leads to divisive cross comparison. Grace alone fuels thankfulness. Self-righteousness between me and God and between me and you chokes it. My wife loves candles. She gets candles as gifts. She gives candles as gifts. Most of us guys do not do that. If you were to give me a candle, my male friends here, I might think that was a little bit odd, but it's very common among our ladies to give each other candles. My wife has lots of them, and they're nice. They're nice ones. I enjoy them as well. We have gotten to the point, because I am a dutiful husband of 21 years, that I will go shopping with her, and sometimes we will spend 10 or 15 minutes looking at candles. Our favorite candle store is Anthropology. We have a particular scent she likes. I give them now to her as gifts. It works out pretty well. I have learned in candle culture, because there's candle culture, I have learned in candle culture that you don't just blow a candle out at the end of the night, particularly whenever you have spent far too much money for it. Like, you know, the scents are drawn from flowers that, like, these little pet monkeys have, you know, picked the flowers around, I don't know, the stories behind these candles, I don't know, they're very precious, that's why they cost so much, I guess. But you're not supposed to just blow this little candle out, right? You are supposed to put the lid back on. Did you know this? This is candle culture. And whenever you put the lid on the candle, guess what happens to the candle? It goes out. Now, let me tell you, the reason you don't blow the candle out is because it creates a little divot next to the wick. Did you know that? But if you put the lid on it, it's supposed to, like, melt and go out evenly. If you wanted to know, this is why. But when you put the lid on the candle, the candle goes out. The opposite of this, an opposite illustration, would be old Tom and Jerry cartoons. One of the things that I remember about Tom and Jerry cartoons is there seemed to always be rakes lying upside down in the wrong places. Somehow, Tom and Jerry's owners, Tom's owner, always had a rake, was always doing yard work. Furthermore, Tom and Jerry's owners always had a fire going, and next to the fireplace they had bellows. Do you remember bellows? Bellows are those things with the handles on the end that look like an accordion in the middle and you pump it and you're supposed to put it down at the base of your fire in your fireplace and it stokes the fire and makes it flame to life. This is the opposite of putting the lid on the candle. Why do I give you these silly illustrations? As I've already said to you, grace fuels Thanksgiving like bellows. Self-righteousness is like putting the lid on the candle. It chokes it and puts it out. And this is what was going on in Colossae. The self-righteousness of the heresy around them threatened to infiltrate the church and threatened to lead the church toward the same kind of ethics that were showing up in the larger culture. The larger culture is naturally self-focused and therefore naturally unthankful. It is only whenever we are being fueled by the bellows of the Spirit through the gospel of grace that we will be led to instinctive, natural thanksgiving. The opposite cannot seek things above, as we've already seen in verses 1-4 of this chapter. For such a person is always gazing inwardly. And when one does lift one's eyes to see other people, one's eyes are only lifted to other other people so that you can cross-compare. And therefore, thanksgiving between you and God dies. It is choked. And thanksgiving between you and others dies along with it. It is choked. Such a life will not be characterized by thanksgiving. Our section for today. And as we've been learning the past couple of weeks together about the ethic of love, such a life will never be characterized by love either. Thankfulness curates our hearts toward love for God and love for people. How do we define culture? Well, it's a set of shared attitudes, values, goals and practices that characterize an institution or an organization like ours. What kind of culture do we want this organization, this church family to have? One that is so enamored with Jesus, the giver of grace, the embodiment of good news, that we cannot help but pump the bellows of grace so that we turn into a thankful, compelling community. And that is what we will focus on today. So follow along with me, the end of verse 15, down through verse 17. Hear God's Word. And be thankful. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Thanks be to God for His word. Three times here, once in verse 15, once in verse 16, and once in verse 17, we are called toward thankfulness. This is not the only place this shows up in the letter. It shows up in chapter 1, verse 3. Chapter 1, verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 7. Here, three times in verses 15 through 17, and once again in chapter 4, verse 2. These are four short chapters, chocked full, permeated by a call to thanksgiving. As I said to you earlier today in our service, we tend to think that thanksgiving should spring naturally, spontaneously from the heart. And I guess it is best when it is done so. But the reality for most of us is we trend so inevitably and naturally toward unthankfulness, toward cynicism and complaint, that we must be called back to Thanksgiving as a virtue. And I think that's why Paul does this here. He wants the Colossian church to be aware that if they give in to a gospel of self-righteousness, which is no gospel at all, it will choke their ability to be thankful toward God and, of course, the next domino, as I've already said, thankful toward one another. And so he calls a people that inevitably could and often do trend away from thankfulness back toward thankfulness, And we are no different than the Colossian church today. The truth of the matter is, we want to be thanked. We like to be thanked for the good that we do for others, for the role that we play in others' lives. It feels good to be thanked. But the truth of the matter is, we have a hard time being thankful. And this is more than just social propriety. What's one of the first things you teach your young children whenever they are born into this world and they are able to begin verbalizing words? You teach them to say please and and thank you. When we adopted our two boys from Ethiopia, we had a chance to do this once again. We took two boys who were on their third language, and some of the first things that we taught these young boys in English was to say please and thank you. But what we're talking about today is more than just social propriety. For there is a whole lot of people, there are a whole lot of people, who say please and thank you. They've said it since they were able to walk and talk. But in their hearts, they are far from grateful, far from thankful. And the reality is, thankfulness is not natural for us much of the time. Complaint, dissatisfaction, grumbling, Disappointment, worse things like gossip, these things are very natural for us, both because we live in a cursed world, but also because we still struggle with self-focus and doubt. The reality is we are bent, if you will. And even though we live in a world that is still filled with beauty, we are often bent martin luther called this didn't use these words because he was german but he called this basically spiritual scoliosis we are constantly bent in on ourselves curved in on ourselves and all we can gaze at is ourselves and the longer we do that the less ability we have to see god and see one another as good gifts Despite our new birth, those of us who have trusted Christ, the onset of our healing from our spiritual scoliosis, we are still bent. We still instinctively fail to see all that is good and beautiful. Paul gives us three verbs here in verses 15 through 17. Well, actually, two, one at the end of verse 15. Be thankful. One at the beginning of verse 16, that the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And the word dwell there is in a command, an imperative. And there's a supplied one in verse 17. But basically this passage could be structured around those three verbs. Be thankful, let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, and do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Supplied verb there. But I think because of this theme that keeps showing up, this theme of Thanksgiving, we can easily say that we can nurture thankfulness, which then leads to the love, the virtues we've been talking about in the previous weeks, which then demonstrates that we have lives that are seeking things above. So we can work our way backwards. Let me say that to you in another way. What does it look like to be seeking things that are above? Colossians 3, verses 1-4. through Well, it looks like putting to death our former vices. It looks like putting on virtues like love. But how does one continue to do that? One can only continue to do that if one has a consistently thankful heart. And then how does one stoke the flame of thankfulness? Paul gives us two ideas here in verses 16 and 17. Number one, the word of Christ is to dwell in us richly. We are to focus on the gospel. That's verse 16. And then secondly, verse 17. We are to do all for the glory of the Lord Jesus. So, to put all this together, how does one maintain a thankful posture, which leads to putting on love and putting off vice, which leads to seeking Christ? How does one do that? How does one have such a thankful heart? By knowing and rehearsing the gospel and by making sure that our trajectory is always toward Jesus. So how can we nurture a compelling culture of thankfulness? First of all, verse 16, the good news of Jesus must permeate our minds, hearts, and words. Verse 16, Paul says, Let the word of Christ Christ, dwell in you richly. This is not necessarily a synonym for the Bible. Although I would contend that Jesus is the central figure the central subject of all of scripture. We might define the theme of the Bible as God's redemption of his people in Christ, one cohesive story. So in a sense, all of the Bible is about Jesus in one way or another. Paul probably doesn't exactly mean that here in verse 16. When he speaks of the word of Christ, he probably means the oral tradition that had been handed down from the Apostles to the churches. And then eventually, as the Apostles wrote the scriptures, they wrote the New Testament, it was primarily about Jesus. So what was the church, the early church, to focus upon? Their Bible was the Old Testament, which testified to Jesus, and as they were writing new things down, which became our New Testament, and teaching the church they were focusing their attention consistently on Christ. And what is the message of Christ? The message of Christ is good news. The good news is that we, who are sinful, separated from God, can be restored to God, not by our own efforts, not by our own merits, but by the grace of Jesus. What did Paul want to dwell What did he want to permeate the hearts and the minds and the words of the Colossian church? Jesus' good news. And this must permeate our minds, hearts, and words as well. The word of Christ is good news for sinners lost and ruined by the fall. Expressing thankfulness, feeling thankfulness, is an admission of lack and of need for another to provide for that lack. And the good news of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, is the ultimate response to our lack. Paul says that we are all to do this. We are all to allow the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. By what means? By teaching and admonishing one another. All of us have a responsibility to do this, to teach the very words of Christ concerning the gospel and to admonish one another to embrace it. And we are to do it with all wisdom. What does this mean? Well, wisdom might be defined as skill in living. We often pray this for people who are getting ready to undergo surgery. Lord, give the surgeons wisdom. What do we mean? give them skill to perform the procedures necessary to heal those we love. But we need wisdom in all spheres of life, applying what God has told us toward one another. How do we apply the word of Christ or the good news of Christ toward one another? And we all, as I've already said, have a responsibility to do this. Well, we might call this gospel fluency. We might call this an adeptness take the gospel and apply it discerningly to each person in each circumstance. What does this look like? Well, the truth of the matter is, most of us struggle in one way or another. Most of us go through very difficult times in life, and you may be there right now. What do you need whenever you are at your? when your self-righteousness has reared its ugly head? What do you need whenever the health diagnosis comes and the future is unclear? What do you need when the finances aren't measuring up and you are in the red each month? What do you need whenever relationships prove their fragility and they begin to fray? You don't need a pep talk about self-esteem. You do not need escape. You need good news. And you need this from your friends. And the truth of the matter is the more that the word of Christ, his good news, richly and naturally dwells within us, the more skilled we will be in taking that good news to The truth of the matter is, if your finances are thin, they may not get better next week. The truth of the matter is, your diagnosis may not come back the way you want it to come back, even if you pray. The truth of the matter is, relationships will fall apart, no matter how hard you try, no matter how much you grind it out. But the reality is, your final word will not be spoken by your man or your doctor or by ones you have lost. Your final word has already come in. Your verdict is in. And your verdict is justification. You are no longer under condemnation. And your trajectory, your destination is glory. And your relationship with God you have trusted Jesus, is unbreakable. And what do you need to hear when life is at its frailest? Not that it's going to be okay because it might not be okay tomorrow. And it might not be okay for a while. But if it is true that Christ has united you to himself in unbreakable covenant love, what you need most from your loved ones and is to hear that you have good news and Jesus is the good we must be careful to be the kind of people that don't just use the Bible as a club that is far from what Paul is saying here in Colossians 3:16 all of us have probably been there at one time or another or experienced this where the Bible is used as a legalistic club to compel you toward a certain structure, a certain code of ethics, and rather than being helped by it, you shriveled up more and more and went more and more inside your own head and your own heart. How will you know the difference between someone applying the of the good news of Jesus, the word of Christ to your heart, on the one hand, and on the other hand, someone using the scriptures to compel you toward a certain uh, set of codes or rules, to control you. I think in the end, you have to ask yourself the question, do I come out of this encounter with another person feeling more loved by God and you, or less loved? If all of us are to teach and admonish one another, and to do so with the content of the word of Christ, the fragrance, the aroma that should be coming out of us is a fragrance and aroma of gracious love. Parents, is this what you are doing with your kids? As you are instructing your children in the good news of Jesus, what is their takeaway? Is it one of control? of keeping up appearances, of making sure that they don't annoy mom and dad? Or are they consistently coming away from such encounters with you, feeling more loved by God and more loved by you? Someone said recently in an article that I read online that some of the most important words that we can ever say to our kids are these, no matter what you will do, I will never that not the good news? That no matter what we do, Jesus will never love us less. Now, does this give us license to just do whatever we want, either in our relationship with Christ or in our relationship toward one another? The answer is, of course, no. But it should be, even as we call one another to repentance, that the aroma that we are leaving behind is one of gracious. reality is we are often so jaded by the hard stuff of life that we cannot help but move toward jadedness and and even worry and even worse, bitterness. Tim Keller, former pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, once said this, worry is not believing God will get it right, and bitterness is believing God got it And a heart that is consumed with worry, which then trends over into bitterness, will never, ever be a thankful heart. One of the most famous American authors, Marilyn Robinson, says this. It has seemed to me sometimes as though the Lord breathes on this poor great ember of creation and turns it to radiance for a moment or a year or the span of a life and it sinks back into itself again. And to look at it, no one would know. It had anything to do with fire or light. Wherever you turn your eyes, the world can shine like transfiguration. You don't have to bring a thing to it except a little willingness to see. Only who could have the courage to see it? Theologians talk about a pervenient grace that precedes grace itself and allows us to accept it. I think there must also be a pervenient courage that allows us to be brave. That is to acknowledge that there is more beauty than our eyes can bear. That precious things have been put into our hands, and to do nothing to honor them is to do great harm. Why do I give you this quote? Let me give another. Good one just to Why? Because often all we see is the dark. Often all we see is the brokenness. But the truth of the matter is. He has made all things good and beautiful, and he is remaking them, and one day, they will far outstrip even our imagination. Frederick Buechner said this, Listen to your life. See it for the fathomless mystery it is, and the boredom and pain of it, no less than in the excitement and gladness. Touch, taste, smell your way to the holy and hidden it." because in the last analysis, all moments are key moments and life itself is great. Most of us have long, lived long enough to have lost jobs, to have lost friends. Most of us have lived long enough to have been despised, ridiculed, lied about, slandered. Some of us have been financially, relationally ruined. But is Jesus not Does he not even take the ruin and out of the ashes bring beauty and life? Paul goes on to say here in verse 16 that we are to teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And one of the ways that we do that is by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs together. Again, marked by thankfulness. Why does he say that? That's interesting. When Luther led the great Protestant Reformation in Germany, which then spread throughout continental Europe, one of the primary things that he did was to translate the Bible into German. It was not available in German before that, it was only available in Latin. The truth of the matter is most people didn't read. If they did read, they didn't read Latin, and even if they did read, they couldn't have afforded a Bible anyway, and they wouldn't have been able to buy it because they weren't even printed. Big problem. So he found ways to translate the Bible. Print it and make it accessible to the average common person. He didn't just do this with the Bible. He wrote hymns in German, not in Latin, so that the common person could come to worship and hear the word of God and take it home with them. Luther considered the hymns that he wrote take-home theology. And this is why it's a great idea, at least in some measure of commonality, to be listening to songs a lot of the time, Christian songs, which remind you of the truth of God and the goodness of Jesus. We sing great songs today. Oh, worship the King. All I have is Christ. My worth is not in what I own. Jesus, strong and kind. Jesus, there's no one like you. We'll finish today with, come thou fount of every blessing, where the hymn writer says, tune my heart to sing your prayer. The bridge and Jesus, there's no one like you. We, we repeated it over and over. All we have, all we need, all we want is you. Do you ever find yourself singing a song thinking, I don't really believe that, I don't really mean that? But that's why we pick it. We pick it to, to reorient our hearts to, to what is good and toward what is beautiful. Often I sing a song like that, not because I necessarily feel it or have lived like that in the week gone by, but as a song of repentance. Lord, the truth of the matter is, I don't recognize that all I have is you. I don't recognize that all I need is you. Often, I don't feel like all I want is you, but I know it's true, and I want this to be true of my life. And we sing together, and we hear each other, and we fill the room with voices to remind each other of what is true and beautiful, particularly the gospel. One of my favorite songs is written by Andrew Peterson. It's really long. It's like 10 minutes. So we'll probably never sing it here because it'll feel like an old Genesis song from the 70s. Way too long. But let me give you some of the lyrics from this, from this song. Andrew Peterson is one of the great uh, Christian writers of our day. He writes books, he writes poems, he writes songs, and they're, they're rich with gospel. Listen to these, to these lyrics. Can't you feel it in your bones? Something isn't right here. Something that you've always known, but you don't know why. Because every time the sun goes down, we face another night here, waiting for the world to spin around just to survive. But when you see the morning sun burning through a silver mist, don't you want to thank someone? Don't you want to thank someone for this? Don't you ever wonder why, in spite of all that's wrong here, there's still so much that goes so right, and beauty abounds? Because sometimes when you walk outside, the air is full of song here. The thunder rolls, and the baby sighs, and the rain comes down. And when you see the spring has come, and it warms you like a mother's kiss, don't you want to thank someone? Don't you want to thank someone for this? Now I can see the world is charged. It's glimmering with promises, written in a script of stars, dripping from prophets' lips. But still my thirst is never slaked. I am hounded by our restlessness, eaten by this endless ache. But still I will give thanks for this, because I can see it in the seas of wheat. I can feel it when the horses run. It's howling in the snowy peaks. It's blazing in the midnight sun. Just behind a veil of wind, a million angels waiting in the wings, a swirling storm of cherubim, making ready for the reckoning. And when the world is new again, and the children of the king are ancient in their youth again, maybe it's a better thing, a better thing, to be more than merely innocent, but to be broken, then redeemed by love. Maybe this old world is bent, but it's waking up, and I'm waking up, because I can hear the voice of one. He's crying in the wilderness, make ready for the kingdom come. Don't you want to thank someone for this? Is the world bent? Is Jesus making all things new? And the answer is yes. And we teach each other, and we sing to each other, and we remind each other of what is true. So how can we nurture a compelling culture of thankfulness? First, the good news of Jesus must permeate our minds, hearts, and words. But secondly today, and lastly, we can nurture a compelling culture of thankfulness by making sure that the glory of Jesus is our aim. This is very similar to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Those in whom the word of Christ dwells richly, those that do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus, will not big-time people, they won't harm others. Rather, they will have a palpable winsomeness about them A spirit of thankful, humble joy that is gracious and compelling. Because all that I do is not about me. All that I do is for the Lord Jesus and for your benefit. I want to see the Lord Jesus praise. And I want to see you flourish. If we can live like that, we will nurture a spirit, a culture of thankfulness. And it is super I am not to be here for me. I am never to step on you. I am never to use you. And if we live like that toward one another, if I do not see you, if you do not see me as a commodity, but as an image bearer redeemed by the grace of Jesus, then we can live together in a spirit, a community, a culture of thankfulness. And my friends, that is so very compelling because it is otherworldly. There is coming a day when Jesus will indeed receive the praise that he's due. In Philippians 2, the apostle says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We can illustrate this by considering the moon and the sun. It was the great ambition of Americans to get to the moon. We got there. An incredible human achievement. But the moon cannot even compare to the sun. The mass of the sun is about 27 million times larger than the moon. I don't even know how to calculate. The sun sustains life on this planet. You know what controls the winds on Earth? It's the sun. You know what controls photosynthesis, which allows us to breathe and take in beauty? It's the sun. You know what controls the radiation of the Earth at just the right temperature so we can live? It's the sun. You know what controls evaporation on the Earth so that it rains and it beautifies and greens the Earth so we can eat? Compared to the sun, the moon is kind of nothing. It's just a dead rock where no life can be sustained. Whereas the sun sustains life of billions of people. But isn't it striking with the way that our solar system is laid out that something seemingly as insignificant in comparison to the sun can obscure it in an eclipse? And that's a lot like our lives, Right? We don't compare to Jesus, really, in any way whatsoever. But we can often eclipse him in the way that we live before other people. What Paul is calling the Colossian church here to do in verse 17 is that in word and deed, or really in everything, we are to make much of Jesus and not much of ourselves. What is a community like where everybody's making much of Jesus and not much of themselves? Well, again, it will lead to a culture of thanksgiving. We see this at the end of verse 17. There will be a culture in which we can all flourish and enjoy. The Colossians were under threat of a false gospel which could not address the bad news. They were ignoring the good news and therefore could not address the bad news. And all the things inside of them could not be addressed and transformed. Paul called the Colossian church to hang on to the good news so that Jesus would not be obscured or eclipsed. And in such a culture, Thanksgiving would be the norm, and people would enjoy it, and people would flourish. It would be a compelling community that could transform lives. So, how can we nurture a compelling culture of thankfulness? First, verse 16, the good news of Jesus must permeate our minds, hearts, and words. To how we teach, even down to how we sing, And secondly, we can nurture such a compelling culture of thankfulness by ensuring that the glory of Jesus is our aim in all that we do. This is checking our motivations. It's checking what we treasure. At the end of the day, we want this to be a church. We want it to be made up by families who have homes that so embrace the word of Christ, the good news of Jesus, that we cannot help As we seek to make much of him in all that we do, to create a culture here by the grace of the spirit, like the bellows we talked about earlier, that fans into flame a spirit of thanksgiving, which then leads to love and putting off harmful vices and seeks Jesus. Do you want to live in such a culture? I do. We all have a role to play in this. So let us pursue thankful hearts And in spite of all that's wrong here, Jesus has given us his good news. He will have the final word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, now take your word. We pray that the evil one would not snatch it away, that we would not return inevitably like the tide back toward cynicism and complaint and grumbling but instead you will lift our eyes to see all that you have done for us you have secured for us eternity you have promised us an unbreakable covenant love you promise us that even when the world seems to be so wrong and bent that there is still so much beauty around us and you are beautifying us and one day you will make all things new So may we remember what you have done and what you have promised to do. And while we sojourn together here on this planet, I pray that we will remember. Enrich us, we pray, by your Spirit with the good news. Fan it into flame, we pray. May we do all things for your fame and not for our own. And please, Lord Jesus, create a compelling culture of thankfulness among us. We might love one another nourish one another, help one another grow, and be light in this very, very dark world. Help us, we pray, in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.